Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Time for another Political Rewind uh, today on GPB Radio. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks so much for being with us. A lot to talk about, so let's get right to the panel. It's Wednesday, which means uh, Greg Bluestein is on with me. Uh, Greg, of course, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Greg Bluestein, the author of Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power, your book which is available for pre-order right now on Amazon, but won't be released, I think, till March. Is that right, Greg? Yeah, it's done. So, I, you know, sometimes you wish it would be released a little earlier. But, hey, it's up to the publisher, and they're smarter than I am about this stuff. So I'm just Yeah, I mean, let's just – I mean, let's just hope between now and then uh, pre- the former president doesn't, in fact, get the fraud discovered in Georgia and make your your uh, book uh, uh, obsolete because Georgia will have turned uh, to uh, a Trump state by then. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you have a lot to worry about. Yeah. Uh, by the way, our condolences to you. Uh, you, I think, are probably the biggest Braves fan who's a panelist on this show, and I'm sorry about last night in Los Angeles, Greg. It was a rough outing, but Braves are still up two to one. We have uh, we have to win. Well, no matter what, the series is coming back to Atlanta. But if we take one of the next two, we're good to go. I'm, I'm happy. Okay. All right. Uh, we're joined again by uh, Professor Adrian Jones, who teaches political science at Morehouse College and is the director of the pre-law program uh, there. Adrian, uh, you teach courses in American politics, in race and law. And it's appropriate that you're on the show today, since we're going to talk a bit about this federal voting uh, bill, a uh, rights bill that will Chuck Schumer is going to try to bring to the floor today uh, because you did your dissertation on the Voting Rights Act under siege. Uh, so thank you for being here today, Adrian. Thank you, Bill, and good morning. Good morning. We are joined for the first time today by Professor Jennifer McCoy, professor of political science at um, Georgia State. Um, before you, we should point out to people uh, who are listening right here in Georgia, Jennifer, that in addition to the work you're now doing at Georgia State, you were at the Carter Center um, where uh, you worked on the um, uh, democratization uh, project there, right? And in fact, um, looking at democracies and their shelf life is an important part of the work you do. Do I have that right? Uh, Yeah, that's right. I spent uh, nearly 20 years um, as director of the uh, Americas program, which focused on Latin America and its relation with the U.S. But I led a lot of election, uh, international election observer missions Mm -hmm. to Latin America. And, yeah, we had projects trying to strengthen democracies. Mm -hmm. So um, we always, the first time someone comes on the show, and we're so glad you're here, we'd like to let our listeners know a little bit more about you. Where'd you grow up? What was your educational path? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, I grew up in Oklahoma uh, in the Midwest mm. and uh, went to grad school at uh, in Minneapolis at the University of Minnesota. Got my Ph.D. there 
and came to Georgia. So I've been here since the mid-1980s, and I've seen the tremendous change, political change, uh, and demographic change, and economic change in this state over the last three decades. Well, um, we're very happy you are here. And although it is uh, not on, uh, on our agenda for today, the fact that you have a, 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 the latest thing, the book that you've written is Polarizing Politics, a Global Threat to Democracy. That's a subject we're going to want to talk about on a future show, and I hope you'll uh, uh, join us for that. But thank you for being here today, Jennifer. Great. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Okay. Uh, Greg Bluestein, uh, State Representative B. Wynn. Uh, also a candidate, a Democratic candidate for Secretary of State, was in Washington with a group of Georgia uh, uh, Georgians among people from uh, elsewhere who were at a demonstration in front of the White House yesterday. They blocked the sidewalk on Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, B. Wynn and a number of others were arrested. Uh, you say that that was a planned action, Yes. Yeah, this was a staged arrest. It wasn't like they were caught off guard um, with this with this sort of mass arrest about uh, uh, several Georgians. There were pastors, Bean Wynn, who's, of course, running for Secretary of State. Other advocates were all in this group, and a handful of them um, were arrested. But the, the purpose was to draw attention to this, what's scheduled to be Wednesday, a procedural vote on the elections uh, voting rights bill that was drafted by Senator Joe Manchin and backed by 49 other Democrats. So it has, it has the, the votes to actually pass. It does not have the votes to, to withstand a filibuster, the 60-vote threshold. So that's the key issue today, um, and they are bringing more attention to that vote. Um, Adrian, one of the things that I think is interesting about where this was staged yesterday, there was in front of the White House, and although we certainly have seen a lot of protests against Republicans, who many Democrats believe have been intransigent in working on voting rights issues, um, B. Wynn and, and the other activists who were involved in this are urging President Biden to get more involved. He's been under the gun, uh, f uh, some say, for not doing enough to put his weight behind um, a federal voting rights bill. I have to agree that it feels like that. Um, I think that you know, the power of the vote is so important and it forms the foundation of the democracy. Um, none of the other bills that will be passed through Congress or, um, or the election of candidates is possible uh, without giving people the power of the vote. And so I think that it really is important that the president, particularly as a former senator, um, consider making this a major priority in terms of what he's talking about to the country and arguably suggesting that they relax the filibuster in order to make sure that this bill gets passed. Um, by, by the way, I, I want to make sure, I, I have a question for you, Jennifer, but before I get to it, Greg, I think it's important we point out, when you say this was a staged arrest, what we mean by that is that the demonstrators agreed on which of the participants would be arrested, not that uh, the law enforcement was involved in this uh, a staged event. And more important, this is a misdemeanor. Uh, B. Wynn and the others paid fines and were immediately released. So let's make that clear right away. Exactly. And, and you see this a lot with protests, um, Republicans and Democrats, when they stage certain protests, you know, they go out there wanting, you know, with the intent of being arrested in order to draw media attention, like, like you know, folks like us talking about it. 
Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Jennifer, um, one of the things, as Bluestein pointed out, there are enough Democratic votes to win a majority on this compromise voting rights bill, which they've now called the Freedom to Vote Act. Um, but obviously, Republicans can block it with a filibuster. And Jennifer, this once again raises questions among Democrats as to whether it is time to end the filibuster Kind of a fool's errand because we know that people like Joe Manchin aren't going to support it, but it does bring the filibuster into the spotlight again. Yes, it certainly does. And, you know, it really shows us the evolution of that custom, you know, which is which is not in law. It's not constitutional. It's just a custom, a habit, a norm of, of Congress, of the Senate. And so it could be changed at any time if there's a will. But this is the problem because we are so polarized. The filibuster, you know, was meant originally to to make sure there was debate, uh, really debate, because the Senate's supposed to be the deliberative body, and then uh, to allow to end that debate so that you could move on and and vote on bills with a with a simple majority for most most things. But it's been used to block almost everything, almost you know every major piece of legislation now, and so it becomes obstructionist. It slows things down. And it means that who, whichever party has the majority is no longer able to implement their vision for the country because the minority can block that or even just a very, you know, one senator or a few senators. So this is this this is a real problem today. And when it comes to something as fundamental, as Adrian said, as voting to our democracy, I do think we're at the point that this merits the um an exception to the filibuster Hmm. so just a couple other things um in agreement and just to point out some detail number one to your question about the white house uh, you know the former president you know has continued to promote the big lie it is important for the current president who was who was being challenged continuously even now um, make voting rights a priority um, number two, I think it's important to realize that historically, uh, particularly in the 20th century, the filibuster has been used effectively against civil rights um, gains in particular. So here we have this happening again, where um, this procedural rule that, yes, if the Democrats decide to um, erase the filibuster in order to pass the voting rights law, might it put them in peril later when they are not in the majority? Absolutely. But all of this legislation is um, delicate because of the polarization and because of the fact that Republicans may gain the majority in Congress in just a couple of years. So um, right now is the issue and voting rights are going to be important for 2022. So I think that some serious consideration of ending the filibuster in order to get this passed is critical. You know, Adrian, when you talk about how the filibuster has been used in the past to block civil rights legislation, it it always conjures up for me um, the memory of reading what I think is one of the most powerful books about American politics that I can recall, Robert Caro's uh, Master of the Senate, part of his uh, three volumes on, on on Lyndon B. Johnson. And when Lyndon Johnson was majority leader in the United States Senate, 
he had to try to win over enough Republican votes to pass civil rights legislation. And his biggest opponent was also one of his closest friends, Richard B. Russell. And the evolution of how Johnson overcame uh, Republican threats of filibuster in that is just thrilling, thrilling reading. For people who haven't read it, if you were going to pick one of those volumes, that's the one personally I would concentrate on. Um, Adrian? Um, I also think Adam Gentleson's book, The Kill Switch, um, does a really good yeah. job of outlining this history, um, including the development under uh, President Johnson. Um, and I think it's important to remember that our current president is a former senator, and if he needs to get on the floor and work <laughs> some of his magic, um, I wish that he would do that in addition to using the bully pulpit. Um, and sort of pulling out all the stops to make it clear to Americans and their legislators um, that we don't want a small percentage of Americans represented um, in Congress to be able to prevent fair voting for everyone. Yeah, and I just wanted to add that, um, you know, recognizing kind of the role of the filibuster in obstructing civil rights in our history, that this new bill that we're talking about right now, the For the Freedom uh, for the freedom of the vote is separate from another bill that needs to be passed, which is the John Lewis Act, to restore some of the protections from the Voting Rights Act to ensure that there's not uh, racial discrimination in our voting process, including in redistricting. Uh, that's a very good point, because those are, those are bills running in parallel in the John Lewis uh, bill has been blocked, of course, by Republicans in the Senate. Greg, uh, the fact that President Biden is under so much pressure from some quarters uh, in the Democratic Party to to get behind this uh, makes you realize uh, what an unenviable task it can be to be president of the United States at times. He's under enormous pressure to figure out a compromise on his uh, th his social policy uh, uh, measure, which was $3.5 trillion, now is being whittled down. He's been under pressure to get the infrastructure bill passed in parallel with that social policy agenda, and uh, also now being told you've got to do more to support uh, voting rights. It's a huge agenda, and it also points out to some extent one of the perils of having con of one party having control of both houses of Congress and the White House at the same time. Exactly. And look, the question here isn't whether the president is supportive of these measures, because he, he's talked about the, the need for federal voting rights expansions. He campaigned on it when he was here in Georgia. He brought it up. He met with Stacey Abrams. He met with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms to talk about voting rights expansions. The question is what political capital he'll put behind it, because right now the, the most pressing uh, priorities that he's put, set out for is to pass the infrastructure bill, which has already cleared the Senate and is waiting and is pending in the House, and to pass the three, well, right now it's $3.5 trillion, but it won't end up that way, social spending uh, budget package. Um, so those he's put at the top, sort of top of his pyramid, um, not to say he doesn't support federal voting rights, but he's put his political capital right there so far, and he's only got so much to spread around. So, um, Jennifer, the bill that, that Chuck Schumer will bring to the floor today is a compromise that they had to go to, Chuck, to uh, Joe Manchin on, given that he is, in many ways, the 50th uh, uh, vote uh, on any Democratic uh, measure, along with Kristen Sinema. But it's, it's really uh, very minimal in many ways. It, it would, um, I think it establishes Election Day as a federal holiday, 
it would impose minimum standards for early and mail-in voting in all states. It does have new campaign finance disclosure rules that it, it would uh, 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 make legal. And to an extent, it tries to rein in partisan gerrymandering, which is certainly not something that's going to uh, happen particularly easily, even in a federal bill. So it's a, it's a very minimal effort by Democrats. But, Jennifer, Republicans are saying, look, elections are the province of state governments, not the feds. They should stay out of this. Jennifer? Well, look, I, I've looked at elections around the world, and the U.S. is exceptional uh, in that we have, first, partisan election administration. We have elected officials running elections. When we are on international election observation missions, we, we say that is not acceptable in other countries. Second, we are almost unique in being so decentralized. We do not have a central election authority, uh, with the exception of the Federal Elections Commission, which just looks at finance issues. But we don't have uniform processes for voting. So that means we actually don't have equality across the country. And so this makes us very exceptional when we look at the world. And I think it's something that Americans need to be aware of and consider um, changing. We do have strong states' rights. That's true. And we want to preserve those. But we also want to make sure that everybody in different states has equal opportunity to, to vote and to be uh, represented. One of the things that I think Americans today need to understand is that the threat against the ability to vote is not racial. Um, you know, it's spread across all of the citizens of the United States, um, you know, if the system is ineffective. Um, I also think that we've already endured. I mean, the reason that we compare the Georgia voting law to Jim Crow is because it is it looks like um, the regime that we lived under for nearly a century, where as a result of state police powers or state right, states' rights, um, states have the ability to discriminate against voters. And that was based upon race. However, um, no one receives democracy unless everyone has the opportunity to vote. And today we can see that these voter restriction rules are not just blocking people of color. Um, it's making uneven the ability to access the franchise for people of all colors and all um, positions. This is, this is critical. So essentially you say if you change uh, the rules by which you can apply for an absentee ballot and the amount of time you have to get one and, 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 uh, and cast your vote by absentee, by mail-in, um, you're affecting all voters, not just uh, minority voters, who many people have said are going to be the victims of, of that sort of thing. Absolutely. I mean, we saw it with exact match, for example, that rule sweeping in um, people who were not <laughs> intended by the rule, um, the closing of polling places, the adjustment of the time, um, this issue in Georgia law about, you know, not accepting provisional ballots. I mean, all of these are limitations that can potentially impact all Georgia voters. And, um, you know, I, I'm just disturbed um, by the fact that we would even tolerate such a thing. And as Jennifer's explaining, in other countries, 
you know, we think that 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 would be absurd not to have a fair election um, administration um, and to allow parties (laughs) to determine, um, you know, where the district lines are going to be, which allows legislators or elected officials to choose voters as opposed to allowing voters to choose elected officials. Greg, before we move on, let's bring this back home. We, we should point out that one of the reasons that Democrats in Congress are uh, looking at, at reform of election laws is because of what states dominated by Republicans like Georgia and across the country did in the aftermath of the 2020 elections uh, to change their election laws uh, in many ways in response to Donald Trump's claims that he lost through fraud in any number of states, but particularly in Georgia. So this is a response to what Georgia legislators did here and in, in other states that were dominated by Republicans. You're exactly right. After, after the election, there was no evidence of any sort of widespread fraud or irregularities, but Republican-led legislators, including in Georgia, including in Texas and, and other states, felt like they had to do something to appease Trump supporters who were calling for their heads, essentially. And so in Georgia, they passed new restrictions and, a, and a, basically an entire rewrite of Georgia law, of election laws um, that bring to light. Uh, some of these issues that, that we were just talking about, how there isn't nationwide standards. I mean, 20 years ago in Florida, we saw each county had different ways to, to count the ballots. And in Georgia, um, early voting is actually expansive when it comes to comparing to some other states, while uh, the way it counts provisional ballots and uh, the voter ID re- requirements are restrictive when it comes to some other states. So, you know, th- that, that's why even some Republicans will privately say, yeah, I wish there was some sort of nationwide standard so we could just chalk it up to what Washington wants us to do. Okay, Bluestein, while the ball's in your uh, court, let's uh, look at a story that you wrote about this morning in the jolt. Um, the, uh, you say that WMUR, which is, which is the major TV station, is the TV station in New Hampshire, uh, and, and always a crucial TV station for people running for president. Jeff Duncan was up there promoting his new book, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and WMUR sent a reporter and asked him why he was in New Hampshire at St. Anselm's College, which is a big stopping place for presidential candidates. Why is he going to New Hampshire? Is he planning to run for president? Uh, Greg? Yeah, on the surface level, he he is promoting his new book, GOP 2.0, his vision of a post-Trump Republican Party, conservatives who can move forward without the former president. Um, But yeah, he also wants to raise his profile. Um, and he did not rule out running for president. He said he's, he's, he's not thinking about that right now. He's focused on his vision for the, for the future of the GOP. But at the same time, you know, we've also, under, we've also uh, understand that he's going to other early voting states, or at least planning, maybe Iowa, maybe South Carolina. I don't know if Nevada's on the, on the docket yet, but I expect him to take his, his, his talk uh, national and try to gain some attention. Uh, try to sell some books, of course, too. But the timing is rough for him because this comes right before the special session for redistricting and, of course, right before the legislative session where he'll have to be front and center, right, uh, as the president of the Senate, even as sort of a lame duck who's not running for re-election. Um, he'll still have a lot of big decisions to make about how the, how, what votes uh, come up for, for debate in the, in the state Senate and what issues he puts his political weight behind. 
Um, you, I think, asked him this very question uh, not too long ago, and he gave you an answer quite similar to the one that uh, is uh, uh, quoted in the AJC this morning that he gave to the reporter at WMUR. Here it is. Well, Duncan said, I'm focused on healing and rebuilding the party right now. If you looked at my to-do list every day of what I have to do in all 50 states and the people I've got to talk to, I'm certainly consumed with trying to heal and rebuild the party, and we're going to be in a process of trying to figure out who's the best leader. Jennifer, that is absolutely not a unequivocally, no, I'm not running, and if drafted, I won't accept <laughs> the, the draft. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yes, that definitely sounds like a wide open door uh, for him to pursue. And it's going to be so interesting to see in this next round uh, which Republicans, you know, do come out. Of course, Donald Trump's holding them all hostage with his, you know, possibility of uh, likelihood of running. But, yeah, having a more moderate Republican um, like this exploring is very interesting because so far we've got sort of Trump uh, wannabes um high on the list, like Ron DeSantis. Um, Jennifer, I mean, I'm sorry, Adrian, you know, it, what's interesting to me about this, and I'd love your take, and then yours, Greg, um, you know, it, Duncan, I would, it is my speculation that Duncan's more moderate uh, position as a Republican is going to have less influence on the 2022 cycle, which is already kind of locked in. You're either pro-Trump or you're against him. And if you're against him, you're not going to get very far, I don't think, the way Republican politics is working right now. But as Jennifer kind of points out, moving towards 2024, whether people like Jeff Duncan, maybe Mitt, a Mitt Romney, can actually move the needle toward a building a Republican Party that is a moderate party that rejects Donald Trump, even if he wants to run for president, that's going to be fascinating to watch. I still think that, um, you know, we're under the former president's haze. Um, you know, we're seeing tension on all the levels. Um, you know, we're hearing about these fights at local school board meetings. Um, you know, over the vaccines, um, we're seeing it at the state level, we're seeing it at the national level. Um, and I feel sort of like the Freedom to Vote Act, where um, you're taking very good legislation or a very good system and watering it down. Um, so it's, you know, I, I personally am not interested in additional time under the Trump administration, um, even if that is watered down, really is the short of it. Right. Look, Jeff Duncan was going to be in trouble if he ran for re-election, no matter what. Donald sure. Trump was going to endorse someone, right? So he knew he couldn't really run for re-election. Uh, but he's placing a big gamble down the road that the Republicans will, will be ready to move on from Donald Trump in mass if he wants to run for, let's say, governor in 26 or U.S. Senate in 26 or federal office before that or after that, that, that being the voice, being one of the loudest voices in elected Republican politics, certainly in Georgia, but one of the louder voices in the nation will pay off for him in the long run. And that is a gamble because, look, you know, a lot of people thought Republicans would be ready to move on from Trump in January. And clearly polls show that many of them are not. All right. Um, thank you for a terrific uh, conversation in this first segment of the show. We do have to get to our first break. We'll do that and come back with a lot more on today's Political Rewind.
Georgia State University political science professor Jennifer McCoy, Morehouse uh, professor Adrian Jones, and the AJC's Greg Bluestein uh, join us for today's show. Uh, Greg, on Monday, I said that um, although we weren't necessarily going to devote a lot of time in, in many of our shows to this, that when there was information to update on what was going on in the trial of the three men accused of murdering Ahmad Arbery, we would at least uh, mention it. And one of the things that's worth mentioning this morning is something we talked about on Monday. There are so many people who really have said they don't see how it's going to be possible to impanel a jury in Brunswick since everybody down there seems to have an opinion on this, the first panel, uh, the first group pool of, of uh, potential jurors, uh, they brought 600 people in, and, and they're not even trying at this point to pick the final 12. They're just trying to eliminate those who are obviously not suited to sit on the jury for whatever reason to get down to the pool from which they will select the jurors. And yesterday... Uh, Judge Timothy Wamsley, who's presiding, said this is, this is way too difficult. This is going to take way too long. They've only had eight people so far who are now eligible to be questioned about whether they ought to, in fact, be among those seated on the jury. Greg? Yeah, and they're, they're looking for people who don't have hardened opinions or who don't have, uh, you know, needs or, or, or financial needs or whatever that, that, that prevent them from serving on a jury that could take months, right, for, for a trial that could take months. And it's so hard to find someone who doesn't have a hardened opinion in a county of about 85,000 people where there's been complete media saturation. Look up here, you know, we're, we're filming this from Atlanta. We're taping this from Atlanta, where it seems like everyone in my neighborhood is, is talking about this trial. But imagine down in, in Glen County, where it's just the talk of, of the community. So it's very, very difficult to find people who don't have those hardened opinions. And it's going to be a challenge. They still have dozens and dozens of people to, to pick for this pool from which they'll pick the final jurors. Yeah. Um, Adrian, uh, the prosecution has been given the, the right by the judge who approves the questions that uh, juror, potential jurors can be asked to ask questions that will ascertain any kind of racial bias they may have. And uh, so far, we don't know uh, whether there have been a number of people excluded on the basis that they've expressed some opinion or in some way shown a racial bias, but we do know that there have been an awful lot of people who have already said, yeah, we kind of think that, uh, that these three are uh, guilty of, of murder. I think that racial bias is going to be difficult to avoid, um, particularly in the way that the case has been covered and the heavy media attention, especially in the local county. So... I guess I continue to hope that some discussion of a change of venue might happen um, and or simply an understanding that some of the, you know, the possibility of selecting a juror that hasn't been exposed to the situation is probably going to be impossible. So, Jennifer, I guess we are going to get a chance to talk about your work on, on dealing with democracies. Um, you know, in the American democracy, the right to trial by jury is, is fundamental uh, to our system. What happens when the three men accused of this crime, when it becomes virtually, well, impossible is too strong a word, when it becomes so incredibly difficult to pick a jury that can, in fact, 
uh, deliberate on whether they're guilty of this crime? Well, I think a change of venue would be the most likely um, result of that or alternative uh, to that, as Adrian said, because it, it is in, in this day and age, first, because of the saturation of the media coverage, and second, because of our polarization and because of our racial history, certainly everyone in that county is going to have some kind of position. And so it's either got to be recognized and try to get some kind of balance among the jurors or um, change the venue. Of course, it's gotten a lot of tension all over Georgia, but, but you know, there'd be more of a chance in a different venue, um, a different city, uh, to have people who are not so hardened already in their opinion. Okay, well, we're going to watch how uh, that unfolds. Um, let's move on. Greg, uh, your colleague, Mark Nisi, who, who covers elections uh, for the AJC, uh, filed a really interesting story, I thought, the other day. We're just a couple weeks now away from the start of the redistricting session down at the state capitol, and um, he wrote a story about how uh, Republicans seem to be starting to look at legislative maps that, in fact, uh, could try to eliminate some incumbent Democrats by putting them into districts together. And here's the lead. Some Georgia legislators will find themselves drawn into the same districts as fellow members of their own political party next month, and they'll be unable to move to another district that's closer to their previous constituents. And the reason they won't have time to move is because the census data came late, the redistricting session is coming late, so things are getting locked in. Um, This isn't the first time that a political party, Democrats have done it, uh, put together a couple of incumbents of the same party trying to knock one or the other off, yes? Not at all. And look, a lot of the focus has been on um, on Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux possibly being drawn into the same district in, in, in the U.S. House. And of course, you don't have to live in the district to run for a U.S. House district, but in the state legislature, you do. And I'm hearing a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff about people who have recently moved, Democrats who have recently moved um, down the street or to another neighborhood who don't want Republicans to find out in case their districts get redrawn. Uh, There's a lot of talk about, you know, that's why some some lawmakers are running for higher office or they're retiring because because they don't want the possibility of having to go up um, with one of their neighbors. And remember, a lot of these folks, some of them don't get along, but a lot of them do get along. So these are Democrats who, who represent neighboring districts who might be best friends, who might be political allies one day and opponents the next. It's, it's going to be very difficult. And you're already seeing a lot of that gamesmanship behind the scenes, stuff that we can't even really report yet that we know could be happening. Um, it, it, here's what uh, Charles Bullock uh, uh, said to uh, Mark Nisi about this. Um, he said that when you do this, when you create these districts, with you put a couple of people from the same party together, you also exclude people who were constituents of one or the other. And he says it takes away the option, potentially, of voting for someone who you like and trust. The majority can take that off the table if they're forcing two individuals to compete against each other. And, Jennifer, that's really important. I mean, the fact that redistricting can, in fact, create lines that remove you from the legislature you have been uh, trusting in, uh, felt was it operating in your best interest for years, and suddenly you no longer have the option of voting for that person. Of course, that can happen in either party, but right now it's Democrats who are, you know, maybe the target of this by Republicans. Well, 
Yeah, I think it's really important for representation when people know their legislators, uh, you know, feel like they are representing them well or have a relationship so like they can get good constituent services from them. But it also means that we're losing some good experienced legislators potentially. And I remember in, in 2011, after that redistricting, uh, two pairs of Democrats that involved each pair, a man and a woman, and Elena Parent and Scott Holcomb put into the same district, and then Stephanie Stuckey Benfield and Howard Mosby put into the same district. In that case, they each worked it out so they didn't run against each other, but the females in each of those cases decided to withdraw. Now, Elena Parent did later come back and run. She had to move to get into the district, but she ran for Jason Carter's seat and won, and so now is you know in the state Senate. And Stephanie Stuckey Benfield went on to a different career. But, but I, I want to point out, too, that in the redistricting guidelines from the legislature, we don't put into law some of the values that many um, uh, nonprofits and, and academics say should be considered in redistricting. But we do have guidelines that these should be considered. And one of those is, in fact, uh, try not to put legislators against each other in the same in, in redistricting in the same district. To uh, Jennifer's point about the rules about districting, I think that, you know, the spirit is important also, right? We were looking um, briefly at the Fair District Georgia information, and one of the um, guidelines there is the Voting Rights Act, for example, right? This idea that, I mean, we know that the Voting Rights Act did an effective job of bringing people into the franchise and making sure that people who had not had access have access, which makes democracy more broad. And so I think that it's important to note that by losing legislators and this political gerrymandering effort um, to combine them and prevent people from running um, is a part of this bigger plan um, not to have equal access to voting, which I think clearly violates the spirit of the democracy and specifically violates the spirit of the Voting Rights Act. Um, which is designed to make sure that everybody has access. Greg, um, I always think it's important to point out when we talk about redistricting in 2021 to, to, and, and talk about how Republicans are trying to engineer maps that will favor them and their candidates, um, that, that this is a, a bipartisan effort over the years. Democrats yeah. did the same thing when Roy Barnes was governor, and in fact, in, in, when Barnes was governor, they created these very strange multi-member districts that were many people thought were outrageous in their effort to keep democratic control of the legislature. And, and so it happened. Both parties are guilty of this. There are those who believe that among the number of reasons that Roy Barnes was not reelected, the flag certainly being an important one, his kind of what many people thought was his war against teachers, but, but also... Um, there was the Republicans really pushed on this issue that he had drawn unfair maps, and that may have hurt him too. Yeah, and and, and not just the state legislature, but the, the congressional maps that stretch from yep. Atlanta down to Savannah, right? Um, and two, something else to keep in mind as we as we get near this special session um, is that there will be some Republican pain too. Um, not, mm -hmm. not as much as the Democratic pain, but if you look at the census numbers, especially the state legislative districts in South Georgia, 
there's going to be a lot of uh, combinations. There's going to be a lot of uh, there's just there's districts that have to get a lot bigger um, down there because the population loss has been so so stark, or the population plateauing has been so stark. And in the exurbs, Republicans will pick up state legislative seats, but in rural Georgia, they will lose them. So there can be retirements. There can be situations where Republicans are pitted against one another in South Georgia as well. So um, we're going to watch how that unfolds. The session, what is the, the first Monday in November, right, Greg, when they come in for the special session? Right after the, 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 the uh, November mayoral elections. Oh, oh, they come in after the mayoral election. Thank you for reminding me of that. Let's get to our final break of the show and come back with more on Political Rewind. Jennifer McCoy, before we move completely beyond redistricting, I just want to mention a couple of uh, data points that come from the Princeton Gerrymandering Project and from Fair Districts, Georgia, both of which are concerned with trying to uh, uh, see if they can do something about gerrymandering. The Princeton Gerrymandering Project uh, did a computer run of like a million possible maps that could be drawn in the state of Georgia as they're doing it for all the other states across the country. And here's what they concluded, and, and I know numbers are hard on the radio, but what, what they have said is this, that if you're going to have a fair map drawn in Georgia, it would mean that you would create anywhere from 92 to 99 Republican districts and anywhere from 81 to 88 Democratic districts, and that there should be anywhere from 9 to 22 competitive districts in the House. In the Senate, they say that we should have between 28 and 32 Republican districts and 24 to 28 Democratic districts, one to seven competitive districts. So that that no matter how you draw the lines, Republicans have an advantage uh, in the House of like seven uh, seats and in the uh, Senate of like four seats. Okay, Jennifer, make sense? Well, in the Senate, it could be actually um, equal. It could be a, a tie looking at those numbers. But in the House, yes, the Republicans would have a dis- uh, would have an advantage. Um, overall, though, uh, what we've seen, the effects of redistricting is that uh, when we look at the whole country and then individual states within the country, Democrats are, are at a disadvantage in that they have to get, for example, for the U.S. Congress, for the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress, Democrats would need to get about 53% of the total popular vote around the country in order to get a majority, whereas Republicans don't need that. So uh, because of our past history and because Republicans have controlled many more state legislatures legislatures since the last redistricting, uh, they were able, you know, the gerrymandering is going in their favor because they do control that. In fact, Republicans have 23 states now with trifectas controlling all mm-hmm. three branches and democrats have only 15. so so we are uh, facing this kind of long-term structural disadvantage for democrats at this moment yeah thank you for proving that you're a professor and i'm just a guy who talks for a living you're right i didn't know, realize that you could have equal distribution in the senate of 28 seats it's very interesting adrian you want to weigh in on this before we move on <laughs> Um, I think it's important that 
people understand that we want to make sure that representation is even, right? That um, the number of people being represented by each person is roughly the same, um, that our political divisions are represented. Uh, I was listening to Representative King, I think, the other day talk about how, you know, with the filibuster, you're having less than 30% of Americans in terms of representation um, able to stop bills like the Freedom to Vote Act. Um, so it's not just having a representative, it's having representatives who are balanced such that regardless of the balance of power in Congress, um, people are earnestly represented as opposed to not. Greg? Yeah, and this is why Democrats and Republicans pump so much money into these down-ticket state legislative races. They didn't get as much attention as the Senate contest, right, or the presidential race, but because Everyone knew, everyone at the Capitol, whoever won control of the, uh, of, of the state legislature would draw those maps, and they're not drawing them to be flippable, right? Um, Republicans are, will, will draw them to remain in power uh, at least through the next four to six years. As the, as the decade wanes, it'll be a little bit harder, right? Those districts start changing. We start seeing the metro Atlanta suburbs flip um, late into this past decade, um, but it'll be very hard for Democrats to compete in many of these seats in a, in, a, in a serious way until later on in the decade. Yeah, and I just wanted to add we that competitiveness is really a critical thing, especially when we have this polarized environment. In, in those maps that you were just talking about, Bill, that, um, that Fair Districts did, there, even though we should have several competitive seats in our state legislature, we've only had one, they estimated, competitive seat in the House and the Senate. And as a really shocking statistic um, that I found is that in 2014 and 2016, 80%, 80% of Georgia districts for the General Assembly had no competition. That is no opposite party competition. Now, that's changed. So by 2020, it was only 50% that weren't contested. But that's because um, Democrats were, you know, really recruiting candidates and putting it together. And it can happen either because there's simply more Republicans or in some states like New York or Hawaii, they're not contested either. But that's because there are more parties, uh, more Democrats in those states, or it can be because of gerrymandering, likely a combination. Wow, it's such an interesting topic and one that we will explore, uh, conti- we'll continue to explore when the special session gets started. Hey, Greg, before we run out of time, uh, I have not mentioned the name of Marjorie Taylor Greene on this show for weeks, uh, but she is, after all, a congresswoman in the 14th District. She has been a fundraising juggernaut since she first won that seat. But this week, reporting, I saw it in Rolling Stone. I think it appeared in other publications as well. Uh, it turns out that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, who have put together this pack and toured the country uh, trying to uh, raise funds and support for their uh, conservative uh, uh, part of the Republican Party, are really, really not doing well at all. Right now they have $13,000 cash in hand in the pack they created. They spent something like $160,000 on going out around the country promoting their pack. Um, does this, she also, and as an individual, Green has raised, started raising less money than before. That, but the fact of the matter is, depending on her district is drawn, 
There's no reason to think she's not going to win re-election in that part of Northwest Georgia, is there? Exactly. I mean, that, that Georgia might be a little bit bluer when it's when it's all said and done, but it's still we're talking relative terms. It's still going to be overwhelmingly Republican safe. But yeah, I'm surprised by that the, that coverage because. Um, you know, this group is hemorrhaging cash, and I've been to several of their town halls that got huge turnout, right? Tremendous turnout. So it's surprising to me that they couldn't raise any money to be more effective uh, in terms of uh, their mission. Um, Adrian, uh, it does feel, though, like at least their efforts to uh, to get this PAC well-funded uh, hasn't really gained a lot of traction out there. <laughs> I, I saw that. Um, I am not, I guess I'm surprised by that because I feel like um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and other candidates, um, conservative candidates in particular, do well in terms of fundraising. Um, I'm even more excited, though, about the fact that um, a number of these black candidates in various states, including um, Reverend Warnock, um, are doing extremely well at fundraising this year. Um, I don't know if that's an aberration because, of course, black candidates have not um, traditionally received as much funding as might be beneficial uh, for their electoral campaigns. But I would like to see that become a regular thing and to expand to black women candidates um, who I think still have some difficulty raising funds to run. Um, Aaron, you get the last word on today's Political Rewind. We are completely out of time. Uh, uh, so th- uh, thank you so much, uh, Adrian Jones, for being with us again. Jennifer thank McCoy, you. it was a real pleasure to have, have you on today. I hope you'll come back and join us again. And Greg Bluestein, as always. Love having you. Oh, by the way, Greg, Jeff Duncan, you and I are going to interview him on Political Rewind next Wednesday. It's a week away, and we'll talk more about it as it approaches. But I'm looking forward to that conversation that you and I will have with him. Uh, by the way, tomorrow on the show, we're going to talk about what has become a big issue, of course, compared to public safety, not all that big. But affordable housing has been something the uh, mayoral candidates have talked a lot about. And tomorrow we're going to have experts on affordable housing with us to discuss where things stand in Metro Atlanta and what they're learning about how you can create affordable housing that might have impact on other cities across the state. That's tomorrow's Political Rewind. So thank you all very much for being with us today. Uh, Sarah Callis, Sam Burmis Dawes, Jesse Neiswanger, as always, we appreciate the work you have done to uh, make this show work. I'll see you again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy. Please wear a mask when you're inside and close to other people and go get a flu shot. And if you don't have the COVID shot, come on, go do that too. Bye, everybody.